Hello, and welcome to Disputed, a Norton Rose Fulbright podcast with your hosts, me, Ted Brooke from Toronto, and Elsa Robertson from Calgary. In this episode, we are talking about the recent changes to the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, or SEPA. SEPA impacts a huge proportion of Canada's key industries, from energy to manufacturing, retail, agriculture, shipping, pharmaceutical, and other similar industries. If you work in any of these, you will no doubt be familiar with Canada's cornerstone environmental protection law. Originating from an amalgamation of legislation since the 1970s, SEPA is designed to identify and control the use of substances which pose a risk to human health and the environment. It governs a variety of environmental matters such as air and water pollution, waste management, fuel regulation, emission standards, and toxic substances. The modern version of SEPA, as we know it today, has been in force since 2000, and the law has not changed since then, at least until now. On June 13th, 2023, the first significant amendments to SEPA in over 20 years received royal assent. The most publicized of these is the recognition that every individual in Canada has a, quote, right to a healthy environment. However, the amendments are, are much broader than this, and include a number of potentially more significant changes for both industry and Canadians. In particular, they include changes to how toxic chemicals are assessed and managed, identifying which substances should be prohibited from use in Canada, and the introduction of expanded powers for the federal government to compel information from industry. This is a fascinating discussion, which starts by looking at SEBA itself, its history, how it works, and why it took so long to review and update the act. Despite the rapid developments in sustainability and environmental science since 2000, we then analyzed the recent amendments, focusing on two in particular. First, the changes to the chemical management regime under the Act. And second, this recognition of a right to a healthy environment. What does it mean in practice for individuals and for industry? Does it create or enhance a statutory cause of action under the Act? Or is this just a form of legislative greenwashing? Diana Weir is our guest for this episode. Diana is an environmental lawyer in our Toronto office, and she has extensive experience in this legislative field. She provides legal and strategic advice on environmental matters concerning Ontario, federal, and municipal legislation, everything from permitting to compliance. Diana is also a litigator and has defended clients charged with environmental offenses and has prosecuted environmental litigation claims by property owners. Diana is a brilliant colleague and a fantastic resource on our Toronto team. Um, she's my first call whenever my litigation matters involve difficult environmental issues. And so we are very happy to speak with her today about these important changes to SEPA. We hope that you enjoy the episode. Diana, thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here and thanks for having me. Okay, so before we get into the amendments to uh, the Canadian Environmental Protection Act, or SEPA, I'm wondering if you can just set the scene for us uh, by giving us a bit of background to this legislation. I mean, what, what actually is the Act and how does it impact Canadians and Canadian businesses? Sure. So SEPA is Canada's principal federal environmental protection law. Uh, there are a number of other federal environmental laws in place um, that complement SEPA or SEPA complements those acts and that regulate matters like uh, agricultural chemicals, uh, endangered species, and broad-scale land-disturbing activities. The modern version of SEPA, as we know it today, 
came into force in 2000. SIPA was originally enacted in 1988, but was substantially amended in 1999 and was the amalgamation of a number of uh, federal environmental laws that were enacted throughout the 1970s. And so since 1999, there have been relatively few and very minor amendments to the Act, which really speaks to the significance of this uh, package of amendments that was recently uh, granted or royal assent. And so the goal of SEPA at its core is really designed to identify, assess, and control the use of substances that pose a risk to human health and the environment. Uh, and SEPA provides authority for the government of Canada to take action on a really wide range of environmental and human health risks, from chemicals to pollution to waste. Uh, it also functions as an enabling statute to provide a suite of instruments and measures for identifying, assessing, and addressing environmental risks. And so when you talk about the, the sort of goal of, of an Environmental Protection Act, um, you know, what comes to mind for me is, well, you know, it's, it's there to make sure we have a safe, clean environment. But I was wondering if you could kind of just tease that out for us a little bit. Like, what, what do you mean when you say that SEPA is about identifying and assessing risks to human health in the environment? And, and how does that actually mean something for the government or for uh, a business or, or for your average Canadian um, when they're concerned about environmental issues? A lot of the matters covered by SEPA are quite technical in nature. And when I when I say that, I'm thinking mostly about uh, the provisions that relate to chemical management under the Act. And in that sense, I think for ordinary Canadians in their everyday life, um, they may not interact with SEPA on a direct basis uh, to the same extent as they might with some other environmental laws that exist at the provincial or even the local government level. Um, however, I would say the impact of SEPA and the regulation of toxic substances under it um, really do have a significant impact for Canadians. I mean, there's I can give you some examples, um, but for example, Banning BPAs in baby bottles and sippy cups, that's something that came about as a result of a risk assessment of BPAs uh, in 2010. And Canada was the, one of the first countries to make that change or make that restriction. Um, and a current example uh, of, a, of a risk assessment that's being carried out under the regime and has really potentially significant implications for Canadians is uh, the assessment of PFAS substances. And so when I say PFAS, I mean fur and polyfluoroalkyl alkyl substances. Um, and that's really garnered a lot of attention in the media lately. And so PFAS are used in a really wide variety of consumer products, including nonstick cookware, food packaging, waterproof clothing, cosmetics. We keep hearing this group of substances referred to as forever chemicals because they don't break down in the environment or our bodies. So for Canadians, this, this you know, restricting the use uh, or potentially restricting the use on PFAS um, as a result of this assessment under SEPA could, you know, Canadian consumers could see some significant changes to some of the products that we're using on an everyday basis. I'd like the example that, that you gave of uh you know, substances in, in, you said, baby bottles, right, being banned. And and so, like, 
I assume if, if there's a substance that is not allowed in, you know, products to be sold in Canada, it's probably because of SEPA. Like SEPA is that sort of statute that um, is used to designate and then, you know, place restrictions on substances that enter commerce in, in this country. Is, is that fair? Well, we do have consumer protection laws, but the SEPA regulations are derived on the risk posed to human health or the environment from substances or substances that are deemed to be toxic. So we do have other bodies of law that could, you know, regulate or prohibit the use of certain products for Canadian consumers. But when we're talking about substances that find their way into products and may negatively impact our health um, or the environment, those restrictions would come from the risk assessment process under SEPA. Um, and so, and it addresses everything from both existing substances as well as new substances in Canada. I'm just wondering, traditionally, how the government has identified these uh, toxic substances and determined the level of restriction that should be applied to them. Um, because presumably, I mean, <laughs> looking at the 20 odd years this act has been this version of the act has been enforced, has been huge developments in understanding the harm of certain uh, chemicals that are used, uh, the baby bottles being one, the use of DDT, I think perhaps in, in farming too. It takes time to test these chemicals and these products. So how has the government traditionally come up with um, those chemicals that should be banned or, or lists of substances that are toxic and what has industry's involvement in that process been to date? So that's a really good question and that really speaks to how the risk assessment process functions under the Act. So when the Act was created, the government looked and came up with something known as the domestic substances list. And this was approximately 23,000 substances that were deemed or found to be in commercial use in Canada in the mid to late 1980s. And all of these substances made their way onto this inventory or a national inventory of substances that were deemed to be manufactured or imported into Canada on a commercial scale. That list still exists. It's been continuously updated. Um, um, and now those updates are generated through the risk assessment process. So for substances that are not included on this list, uh, companies that want to import or manufacture into Canada uh, a product that would contain a substance that's not on the DSL is what we call it, they would need to apply or provide a notification to the government to have that substance risk assessed. And it's a fairly technical process and there's different requirements depending on the quantities um, as well as specific uh, nature of the, the substance. I'm talking about chemicals, polymers, organisms. There's different requirements. Um, and so they before that substance is manufactured or imported into Canada, you need to notify. Diana, any chemical substance polymer that, that's in a product that a business might use or a consumer might buy in Canada, that is on the DSL list. And if it's a new one, then you need to apply to have a, you said, risk assessed. Do I have that right? That's correct. I know that there are, are there's another list under SEPA. 
uh, or there used to be a, li a list of toxic substances. Is and, and that's a different list than the DSL, right? Yes, yes, it is, and that is so. If a depending on the outcome of your risk assessment, if it is determined under the, under SEPA that a substance is toxic, it will be added to the Schedule One list of toxic substances under the Act, and by adding it to Schedule One, the government gets authority to regulate basically the full life cycle of that substance. So manufacture acti manufacturing activities, import, um, export, disposal. So the government gets really comprehensive powers to manage the life cycle of that substance to try and limit exposure or manage the risk associated with exposure. Uh, so you've, uh, thanks Diana, you've told us a little bit about um, how chemical management's a cornerstone of SEPA. Before we get you know, deeper into that topic and deeper into the amendments that, that have come out recently to the Act, um, I just want to circle back. Uh, what else does SEPA cover uh, at a very high level? Right. And I would be remiss if I didn't touch on some of the more discrete matters that are addressed under Part 7 of the Act, which addresses pollution control and waste management. And so this is kind of an omnibus provision um, that just addresses a number of discrete areas. And some of those are the disposal at sea provisions. Um, and these relate to our uh, Canada's obligations under the London Convention uh, that prohibit disposal at sea of anything other than a very, very small list of substances. Uh, the Act provides authority for the regulation of fuels, including the concentration of fuel additives um, and transfer and handling of fuels. Uh, other areas are uh, setting emission standards for engines, uh, certain types of engines anyways, on-road vehicles, off-road vehicles, lawnmowers, and uh, watercraft. And it also prohibits the import and trade and sale of vehicles or engines that don't meet those prescribed requirements. Uh, and it also establishes a regulatory regime for the import and export of hazardous waste and so implements Canada's uh, obligations under the Basel Convention. And so, and there's also provisions that relate, and they're kind of backstop provisions um, for matters that maybe aren't captured under other schemes, but uh, provisions that relate to the management of environmental emergencies under Part 8 of the Act. And so, and one point I want to make is that um, contravening these provisions under SEPA uh, does constitute an offence and there are significant uh, enforcement uh, risk and fines that can be levied to companies that uh, are found to be guilty of an offence under the legislation. So there is significant enforcement risk under the Act. Is there individual liability for CEOs, directors, and officers too? There is, yes. And a number of the offences, the offence will be considered to be constituting a new offence each day that it occurs. So that can add up to being very, very significant fines and penalties that we've seen, especially in recent years underneath the Act. There's also some other really significant powers um, that are purported at least to be provided under the Act to everyday Canadians. One of those powers being the ability to apply to the Minister of the Environment to conduct an investigation of any offence that's been allegedly committed under the Act. Um, and another important point that I want to talk on, because I think it, it, you know, it's important to understand um, 
you know, what sort of uh, actions are available to or powers are available to Canadians uh, under the Act. And that's Section 22, which purports to provide this environmental protection action, um, which is sort of a form of public interest litigation where individuals can bring an environmental claim um, under the Act. Now, this provision's never actually been used, um, but I think it's important to be aware that this, this form of action has been contemplated under the legislation and that there's been a lot of um, commentary on how these provisions per could be amended to make them um, more usable for everyday Canadians. So, Diane, I just wanted to circle back briefly to uh, Section 22 and this public interest uh, litigation environment or the ability for Canadians to bring an environmental protection action under the Act. Um, you mentioned that the, this has not actually been used to date since it was introduced in 2000. Um, why is that? So the requirements um, in order to be able to actually bring a claim under this provision are really significant. So first, uh, an individual would have already had to request that the minister conduct an investigation and report on the investigation and then determine that the minister's response um, to the request to investigate was unreasonable. The second threshold uh, that element that someone needs to establish in order to bring a claim under this provision is establishing that an offense has in fact been committed under the act. And the third requirement is establishing that the offense has caused significant harm to the environment. And so taken together, it's quite a significant burden for the average individual to be able to establish each of those elements in order to bring a claim. And I also want to add that, you know, the intent being that um, we want to prevent people from personally profiteering off bringing these claims, but the act actually prohibits a court from awarding damages uh, for any individuals that bring a claim under this provision. So I think coupled um, with those threshold requirements, it's really put a chilling effect on the on the potential for anyone to try and avail themselves of their rights under this provision of the act. But yes, I and I mean, there's been a lot of, um, you know, advocacy and uh, recommendations or requests to amend these provisions to make this, you know, a more viable provision under the Act and some interesting um, proposals that have been made. But I, we just really haven't seen uptake of that anywhere, including in the most recent um, round of amendments to SEPA. This, you know, there really wasn't any um, considered proposal to amend this provision that seemed to have any traction. Um, so I think that's a good segue. Uh, could, we, could we move to t talk about uh, what these new amendments are and where did they come from? I understand there's there's a, there's a bit of a history, um, but uh, why don't you walk us through that, Diana? Yeah. So under the under SEPA, there is a provision that requires the act to be reviewed every five years, and so that review process has actually only taken place twice. Um, the first review occurred uh, or was commenced in 2005, didn't result in any amendments to SEPA. A second review was commenced uh, by the House of Commons in 2016. Uh, and that review resulted in the issuance of a report in 2017 that made a significant number of recommendations for the reform of SEPA. 
And the intent of those recommendations were focused around three main goals, um, moving Canada closer to enshrining environmental rights, uh, substituting safer alternatives for different substances and commerce, and strengthening the protection of vulnerable populations in the regulation of toxic substances. Uh, and there was some pushback uh, to, the, to those recommendations. I think one of the major concerns amongst stakeholders uh, was the the potential for our chemical management scheme to be taking a more hazard-based approach to chemical management uh, as opposed to the risk-based approach that's currently in place. And and by that, I mean the risk-based approach considers both hazard and exposure. And and a lot of those in industry feel that this is actually a very um, tempered and maybe kind of the gold standard approach to to risk management for chemicals, uh, what we have currently in Canada. So there was some comments and pushback on those recommendations. And ultimately, uh, 35 of the recommendations that were in the report were incorporated into Bill C-28. Um, And that was introduced in the House of Commons in uh, April of 2021. So that'll tell you how long these amendments have been uh, working their way uh, through Parliament. It is pretty outrageous that there are provisions in CEPA to review the Act every five years, and yet it's been more than two decades to actually get any significant amendments to that Act. Given the advancement that has been in environmental science in the past 20 years, completely inconsistent with the speed at which uh, CEPA has been reviewed and amendments have been considered. And the question being, why has it taken so long to get to this point? If you look at the the feedback that the, these amendments received, I mean, there this impacts such a broad segment of the Canadian population. Like we don't just have industry stakeholders and, and by industry, like we're talking about the electricity industry, mining, um, oil and gas, you know, manufacturing, consumer products, chemical manufacturers. We also have, um, you know, environmental NGOs, um, bodies that represent uh, doctors, um, you know, like there's just this indigenous communities. There's such a broad number of stakeholders who have, in some cases, very um, disparate uh, priorities with respect to the amendment of the Act that I think, and and you'll see this if you go in and look at some of the um, review of the of the proposed amendments that a lot of times people, you know, the comment was, okay, we're we're just trying to get this package of amendments through. This doesn't mean SEPA is not going to be amended today, but we have to kind of keep our eyes on the prize that if we're ever going to amend this act, we're not going to be able to address everything all at once. And so I think there's been that tension between trying to make meaningful reform through a package of amendments, but actually being able to to get get something um, approved and put in place. The other caveat that, um, you know, risk assessment and chemical management is resource intensive, Um, you know, Science is changing all the time, um, and so and we we the government does have limited resources to carry out these risk assessments, and so you know 
making substantial changes to that risk assessment process, um, you know, that's significant and that's going to be a really big undertaking. Um, you know, as part of these amendments, we're seeing a new plan of chemical management priorities that's going to be consulted on over the next two years. And that could have really significant impacts for how we actually carry out risk assessments in Canada. Um, and, you know, with the introduction of new uh, considerations uh, in that risk assessment process, the question becomes, are we going to have additional resources made available to Environment and Health Canada to actually complete these risk assessments. Um, another comment we've seen is, you know, the, the risk assessment process for chemicals and substances in Europe is, is very, very data intensive. And the comments from industry was, well, you know, the GDP over there and in is much larger. There's a there's a much you know larger economy to support this risk assessment process than what we have in place in Canada. Um, so I think we need to be able to balance, you know, providing adequate protections um, with respect to chemical management with creating a system that works and is efficient um, and can actually you know risk assess substances within a, a reasonable time frame. And that's something else we see addressed under the Act is there's additional requirements placed on the amount of time that the government actually has to respond to a risk assessment and provide comment. Um, so so really super, super interesting, Diana. What, what, what I'm hearing and taking away from this is, you know, SEPA as a statute, it touches many sectors. So that's creating tension because everyone wants to weigh in on issues that are important to them. Um, it does many things as a statute. You said it's an omnibus statute, an amalgamation of a variety of, of environmental statutes from the 1970s and, and later. Um, and then this idea of chemical management, which is a cornerstone of the act, is itself resource intensive. It's science-based. It's really hard. Um, and it, it is certainly so important to manufacturing and uh, uh, product consumption in this country that that uh, industry wants to weigh in, government wants to get it right. And, and those reasons sort of create a perfect storm, I guess, that slows down the amendments and, and stops you know, or maybe contributes to the delays that we see in, in having the act updated uh, to a point that people would like it to be updated um, on, a, on a regular basis. Yeah this shouldn't be interpreted to be the final package of amendments. And so, you know, some of these matters that were, you know, perhaps ripe for uh, addressing at this point in time, while they may not be reflected in the current round of amendments, there are probably going to be more amendments coming down the line in the future. So, okay. So um, let's say back. So we had um, these 35 recommendations from the report that you mentioned that went into Bill C-28 and that then died on the docket as a result of the election in the fall of 2021. But then February 2022 comes around and we have uh, Bill C-5, which has now become the amendments that have just rece received royal assent. So talk us through what the actual amendments are. Yes. So the only comment I'll make there is Bill S-5 because the, the new uh, bill originated in the Senate as opposed to the House of Commons, but that's the only little caveat. And so that was February 2022 that we basically see the substantially the same package of amendments um, being reintroduced. Uh, and so while there has been a lot of focus on the right to a healthy environment, which is significant and interesting, uh, the amendments are much broader um, and include another a, a number of other important aspects. Um, one of those or a few of those I want to highlight and share with you. Uh, 
the first being affirming the government's uh, commitment to implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, or UNDRIP, uh, including free, prior, and informed consent, uh, the authority to impose total, partial, or conditional prohibitions on toxic substances that pose the highest risk under a revamped Schedule 1. So you'll recall earlier that we were talking about this Schedule 1 list of toxic substances, and under the amendments, that list has actually been renamed uh, to just Schedule 1. Uh, and bifurcated into two parts. And so I think this is interesting because it provides a little bit more of a um, uh, nuanced approach to risk management for substances uh, and gives the government a little bit more options on how they actually are going to be managing these substances going forward, whether they find themselves into the highest risk group in part one of schedule one or part two of schedule one. And I can say the proposed list for part one schedule one is very small. Um, under our current uh, list of toxic substances, there's approximately, I think, 160 substances and only 19 of those are going to find themselves into falling into the category of highest risk substances. Um, and so that's another really interesting uh, change to the scheme. And I think one that received a lot of attention uh, from industry stakeholders. And so. Um, for the rest of the uh, uh, tox not toxic substances, but substances that find themselves on the Schedule One Part Two list, um, risk management is now going to focus on pollution prevention measures as opposed to prohibition on the use of those substances. Um, and the other uh, interesting change or list that we're seeing that's going to be introduced as a result of the amendments is this creation of a watch list of substances, which they're not going to be currently regulated um, under, uh, under the scheme, but uh, may become the subject of regulation in the future. And, and this is one, again, that caused a lot of concern for industry. Um, a lot, I know a lot of industry stakeholders felt that this in some ways was du duplicative of provisions that actually already exist under the scheme. And that's something called the significant new activity um, requirements where basically the government approves the use of a substance, but it says, you know, it's only in these circumstances and anything beyond these circumstances requires further assessment and approval. Lots of lists. Um, in <laughs> fact, too many lists for me, for me to keep track of, but so Diana, I do, I, I'm being half serious. <laughs> so, so we have our big list. You, you said that's the DSL list, right? With thousands of, of substances. And we had our toxic substance list the lists which the government had the power to regulate and, and prohibit. And, and what I understand is you're saying the amendment split that toxic substance list into two, part one, part two. And um, the government now has more flexibility to address substances that, that are on part two of that list. Um, it, it, but but I, I assume that they had the power to sort of prohibit the use of toxic, toxic substances before the amendments. Um, so, so what, what, what was actually new about that? that? That's sort of where, where you lost me. And it wasn't your explanation. It was kind of me keeping track of, of all of the lists. Right. So under the old scheme, we actually had something called the virtual elimination provisions, which basically the, the substances that were deemed to be of the high risk, risk were supposed to be categorized for virtual elimination. but 
those those provisions were never really used um, and they were kind of deemed to be untenable. Um, and then we had this schedule one list of toxic substances that encompassed uh, kind of a really wide ranging number of substances that, you know, some of these substances were really inher inherently toxic um, and did pose significant risk. And some of these substances that in certain applications could pose significant risk, but perhaps not in other applications. Um, and so part of the bifurcation of the list, I think, reflects industry concern that was voiced that's saying, we're kind of getting the wrong impression of what these substances are that are being captured under this list and what the level of risk is that is associated with them. So by bifurcating and creating kind of two different risk management schemes under this new list or yeah, the new schedule one, I think it's going to clarify um, for individuals, you know, what we're deeming to be the truly highest risk substances and all risk management for those substances is focused on prohibition versus the or partial prohibition uh, versus the lower risk substances in part two are really going to be regulated pursuant to pollution prevention provisions. Um, so it's, you know, talking about and, and it's true, there was you know, authority to prohibit the use of substances through these virtual elimination schemes. But I think we've now clarified the appropriate types of risk management measures that are to be applied for the two categories of substances under the scheme. Do we have examples of those uh, substances that would be on the prohibition and then those that are more risk management? Yeah, so I think, you know, one that um, would be widely recognized, I think you mentioned earlier, that's going to be included in part one of schedule one, I think, um, is DDT for example, um, versus the vast majority of other substances uh, that are on the list, I think it's something like 140 of them are going to find their way onto part two. And, you know, that covers a really, really broad range of substances, but it includes things like asbestos, lead. Um, and so there's there's a big range, a lot of chemical substances and groups of chemical substances on that list. Um, but a lot of really long names that I'm not going to try and uh, say for everyone on the, on the podcast today. This <laughs> will be part two, not, not part one. That's interesting. Yes, yes. So I think that, again, it's speaking to saying these are truly only the highest risk substances that are going to be finding their way onto part one of schedule one. Um, and, and so and there's, you know, they're saying these are substances that are going to be, um, you know, very persistent, bioaccumulate um, and are are largely the product of human activities. So there's there is some more uh, context being given as to the types of substances that are going to be finding themselves onto that list. And now, does being on part two of the list give you a free pass to use a substance in manufacturing or in your products, or are you potentially going to be subject to a more complex, more nuanced regime than you would have if it had just been under uh, part one? So it's certainly not a free pass. Um, I think, you know, anyone that finds a substance included on any either part of schedule one um, has additional uh, obligations with respect to the use of that substance and, so, and sort of higher uh, product stewardship ob obligations. Um, I think, you know, candidly, we're going to need to wait to see a, a bit more development of what these new um, pollution provision measures are going to be under part two of the scheme, because we're 
part of this is that the new chemical management plan um, is still under development under, under these amendments. So I think we're going to see more down the line or more elaboration of what this is going to mean for the different substances um, that find themselves under these two parts. But it's certainly not something I would characterize as being a free pass. So Diana, uh, uh, the chemical management provisions in, uh, in the amendments seem to be really important for businesses in the manufacturing uh, and resource-based sectors, but everyone seems to be talking about something else in the amendments. And so we, we definitely want to use our time with you to, to dig into this uh, idea of a right to a healthy environment that has been introduced to the preamble to the act. And I understand has also kind of been incorporated into uh, an obligation or duty on, on, on the government to protect in, in another part of the act. So, so what is the, the right to a healthy environment um, and uh, where has it come from and, and, and what do you see arising from it going forward? Right. And, and so for a little bit of background, I think it's important to understand that, first of all, there's been a lot of um, a big push for Canada to recognize uh, a right to a healthy environment. Um, and part of that is that, you know, there's, this right has actually been recognized by a lot of other, in a lot of other jurisdictions, and there's there's different ways uh, in which that right has been recognized. Um, but I just want to also talk a little bit about um, what's generally considered to be encompassed in a right to a healthy environment. So when we're talking about the right, there's both procedural and substantive elements that we can think about. Uh, and when I say procedural rights, I'm talking about access to information, participation in decision-making and access to justice. Uh, and then the st substantive elements of the right would include matters like uh, the right to clean air, a safe climate, access to safe water and adequate sanitation, healthy and sustainable produced food, non-toxic environments in which to live, work, study, and play, and healthy biodiversity and ecosystems. So you can see, you know, the different substantive matters that are that have been addressed by the right can be very, very broad. Um, and that's frankly not what we've seen um, with the amendments to SEPA. They don't capture all the procedural or the substantive rights that can be included under the umbrella of a right to a healthy environment. Um, rather, the amendments suggest uh, that the right to a healthy environment is going to be an organizing principle or framework uh, through which the government will be administering their, their, their obligations under SEPA. Uh, and so as you briefly touched on earlier, the amendments uh, introduced into the preamble of the act, uh, the requirement that uh, the government shall recognize that every individual in Canada has a right to a healthy environment. Um, but we need to know that a preamble isn't enforceable. Um, and so any meaningful amendment um, or meaningful requirement for the right to a healthy environment is really going to need to be found in the body of the act. And there, and there is, isn't there something, Diana, though, I recall, like in the act, sort of giving teeth to that, that right in the preamble? Correct. Correct. You're correct. There's more. So section two uh, has been amended and now imposes a new duty on our federal government in its administration of the Canadian Environmental Protection Act uh, and specifies that the government shall protect the right of every individual in Canada to a healthy environment as provided under this act 
subject to any reasonable limits. Interesting. Those those last five words seem seem pretty important. Are very important, um, and there was a lot of debate uh, regarding what those reasonable limits will entail. Uh, and the act doesn't define the reasonable limits, but we do have some guidance to indicate that they can include social, health, scientific, and economic factors. So those reasonable limits could be quite significant. And, and I, I don't know if, if this comes to mind for you, Elsa, or, or you, Diana, but, but in my litigation practice, what jumps out is reasonable limits under Section 1 of the Charter. Right. And, 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 and this sort of body of jurisprudence that talks about um, how you apply Section 1 and the reasonable uh, and, and the limitations that can be placed on uh, charter rights um, and, and how those reasonable limits have to be you know, demonstrably justified in a, in a free and democratic society. Is it, do, you, do you see that that, you know, charter case law sort of getting incorporated into the the application of, of this right? That's definitely where I think people's minds have gone when we're talking about what these reasonable limits might be and how they might be applied. Again, unfortunately, at this point, we really don't have a lot of guidance from the government. And I can explain that, and provide a bit more context um, as to why we're expecting additional guidance to be forthcoming. And that is because of the new amended section 5.1 of the act, um, which requires the Minister of Health and Minister of the Environment to develop within two years an implementation framework on how the right to a healthy environment will be considered in the administration of SEPA. And so this is where people are really looking to say, this is where we expect to get some better guidance on how this right is actually going to be put in put into effect and put into practice when the government is carrying out its obligations under the legislation. It's also just to emphasize like it's not a substantive right here like this isn't a charter right it's not a constitutional right it's it's really like a, it's an interpretive principle. So I, yeah I just want to emphasize that point is that we talk about this being a right but it's not a right that you can ground any kind of cause of action in at the moment. Yes and I think you know I think that's what you know we've seen a lot of people really celebrate the recognition of this right uh in in our federal kind of cornerstone environmental legislation. Um but I think a lot of people who are you know practice in this space and have looked at this and said you know we need to be very clear about what what this actually proposes to provide to us. And this this isn't going to be the same, you know, for example, constitutional right that we've seen in some other jurisdictions. This isn't going to be providing the same types of protections that I think some people would envision this right providing um, that you would see in some other jurisdictions or how people, individuals have been able to avail themselves of the right in other jurisdictions. It's just not what we're going to be seeing. As you've said, this is really kind of an organizing principle or framework through which and which is going to infuse um, how the government chooses or goes about administering its obligations under SEPA. It seems like it's a, a strong recognition of a, of a right at first glance, but then when you look at it further, this is really about the administration of the statute, a statute which is focused on uh, a wide range of, of issues, but they're they're often quite technical, um, and 
as you said earlier, uh, all subject to a really a, a hypothetical statutory action for for citizens to to implement because it is so challenging um, for anyone to actually bring an action under SEPA uh, based on a, a failure of, of, of the minister to investigate a particular problem. So I, I, well, what, what, what my question for, for maybe both of you is, is this a kind of greenwashing by the federal government to its own Environmental Protection Act saying, you know, look at look at the what we're doing, but it actually doesn't change anything? Are we going to see teeth um, in this framework when it when it does arrive? So a I, I, couple points I want to make in response to your question. Uh, first of all, I think you're you're linking this back a bit to the to the public interest uh, litigation right that I referred to earlier under Section 22 of the Act. And um, to your point, um, a lot of concern was raised around how the right was being framed and whether or not you know this is a meaningful recognition if we don't have any available enforcement mechanism under the under the act. Um, and that was a concern actually that was specifically raised by the Senate committee when it reviewed uh, this package of amendments. And, and the response from the government was basically to say, you know, you should expect or we anticipate that actually there'll be further amendments to SEPA foreshadowing what we might expect to see or what the government envisions about how this right might become enforceable. Um, but the other point I want to make is um, when we're talking about the implementation framework and what we might see to come, um, there has been a bit of additional guidance about what is to be included in that implementation framework. And um, while it's a it's a small reference, um, there was inclusion of mechanisms that would be used to protect the right to a healthy environment. Um, and so I, I suspect that's something that will garner a great deal of attention through the stakeholder consultation process um, on on this implementation framework because obviously you know we're going to have a lot of a lot of interested parties in saying okay what type of mechanisms is the government envisioning to use to protect this right on that on that point Diana if you are a business and that that is interested in in how SEPA affects you and your industry um, I, I am kind of interested to hear about how you can contribute your thoughts or submissions to the development of this framework. It seems like there is going to be collaboration with with industry and and the public. So so what does that look like and how how do people get involved? Right. So there's a two-year um, time frame that's been provided under the amendments for the government to come up with this this framework. And the government's actually been mandated to carry out stakeholder consultation on the implementation framework during that two-year period. Um, and I think something I touched on earlier was, you know, kind of the intensity of uh, industry lobbying and comments provided on the draft amendments when Bill S-5 was working its way through Parliament. And I think we can expect to see the same um, level of interest amongst industry groups um, that are affected by SEPA. And so that's certainly an opportunity um, for, you know, stakeholders who feel they are impacted by these amendments um, to become involved and have their opportunity to provide input on what this implementation framework is going to look like. There are some areas that I expect um, stakeholders to be particularly interested in. 
would be, you know, the proposed mechanisms to protect the right, as well as the re the relevant um, factors that can be used uh, to limit the right to a healthy environment. Because I think, you know, getting clarity on those points uh, is going to be really important because uh, it's going to have a big impact on how the government actually implements this with respect to, for example, risk assessments for toxic substances going forward. Now, bottom line on all of this is, you know, reach out to Norton Rose, reach out to myself, um, because we can help you by monitoring uh, the, the status of the development of the framework, providing updates, uh, as well as input on, or how to guidance on how to provide input during the stakeholder consultation that's going to be coming, coming about very shortly. I think, I think, we, can we um, just address other jurisdictions in terms of looking at how what we know from them can help navigate this uncertainty? I think the only other one specific to the right I didn't touch on was there are new information gathering powers um, that the government is provided to protect the right. I, I, I do. It does make me wonder with the information gathering powers, like how extensive they are and how problematic they could be. And, particularly, and it's compliance, right? It's getting requests that you're not familiar with. I think it would be worth addressing. In my view, like that to me is actually in some way, some of the scariest aspects for industry under this under this package of amendments. Um, there's a very significantly expanded information gathering powers. And I think for everyday Canadians, um, part of the concern around, you know, pollution, exposure, and toxic substances is a lack of information. And I think that is reflected in what we're seeing where it, you know, we're saying, okay, not only is the government allowed to gather information about substances that might be toxic, that power is now being extended to products that might contain or release a toxic substance, as well as certain activities that may um, cause a toxic exposure for the environment. And, and there's specific activities that are enumerated under the amendments, including tailings ponds and hydraulic fracturing. And, and and those powers, that that ability to get information, the government didn't have that under the old SEPA. So the government had information gathering powers, but those were more confined and it was to do with the actual substance. So when we're saying a product that can release a substance or um, contain a substance that expands the realm of things that the government, like in the past, the government was saying, okay, we're issuing a notice with respect to this substance and regard. And so anyone that has information that could potentially be relevant uh, for environmental or health risk exposure in relation to this substance, you have to provide us with that information. And they, and they publish these notices in the Canadian Gazette and, you know, manufacturers, different people in the industry would say, okay, I've got to respond because I have information on this. The scope of that is now expanded. So I think an example that was actually given um, where we're talking about products that could release a substance, this goes as broad as saying, okay, this could include like a container that could hold fuel, right? Like this, the scope of what we're saying now could be caught by activities or products that involve the use or can release a substance is much, much broader. Um, and so I think, you know, we haven't seen how that's actually going to be put into effect, but you can see who they're targeting when they're specifically naming activities like tailings ponds or hydraulic fracturing. Um, candidly, in Canada, we have communities um, that would be, you know, from 
all intents and purposes deemed as vulnerable communities or vulnerable populations um, who are located in the vicinity of, for example, mining activities. And there is a high degree of suspicion that they may be impacted by activities that are carried out in those facilities, but they just don't have the information to actually connect perhaps negative effects they've experienced to those activities. And when we're seeing this expanded scope of information gathering powers, it suggests that, you know, the government is going to use some of these tools to actually go in and gather information that in the past they wouldn't have necessarily have had access to. And that creates a civil liability risk as well, presumably, because there isn't the information that is submitted, requested, there's no, it's not automatically confidential. I think you can apply to have it held as being confidential, but there's new provisions under the legislation that also say you have to justify why that information should be held as confidential. And there are also now specific circumstances where even if you request or even if information is being held as being confidential, the government can actually make that information public. Um, And so, you know, there's fewer protections for confidential information, and it certainly does create a risk um, for companies that perhaps, you know, are aware and are holding information um, as being confidential or private that could create a risk of civil exposure for harm suffered by those who may be negatively impacted by products that are, you know, a byproduct of certain activities they've carried out. How does a member of the public get access to the information? Well, if the government decides to make it public. So this is, I mean, this is, so the the overarching theme, I think, of, of the amendments in some way is saying this gives the public a tool to hold the government accountable and how it's administering SEPA. So how it's making decisions about pollution control, um, and toxic substances in Canada, because, you know, in my view, this is really going to give individuals perhaps a new avenue to judiciary review government decisions made under the scheme, which in turn, I think is about going to hold industry to greater account, um, because they have to know that the government has more power now to gather information and investigate the use of substances or pollutants in the environment. Um, and that, that could help to draw out, you know, potential liabilities with respect to toxic substances or pollution in Canada. You know, it, in a sense, it's like the, you know, parliament is providing these rights to government um, in order to put pressure on politicians, you know, at the at the polls, right? Because the public can say, I know you have the power to do this. Why aren't you investigating this particular substance that is, you know, important to me or this particular area where I live? And, you know, did you see that as a sort of then what they were, the, the drafters were trying to achieve? I think so. Like, I think we're saying these are the tools that the government has these new duties owed to individual Canadians. And part of this also is, you know, they've introduced um, timeframes to respond to requests to investigate by the public. And so I think the idea here is that exactly individuals can initiate these requests and say, you know, I have, I know you have these powers. I know you have these new abilities. And if you're not fulfilling that duty, I now have the power to say you are in the wrong. You haven't administered SEPA in accordance with your obligations to protect my right to a healthy environment. Um, And that in turn 
I think is going to impact industry um, and how they fulfill their obligations as, you know, environmental stewards. The takeaway I'm getting is there's a lot of uncertainty until we until we see what that second part framework looks like. But uh, there are other jurisdictions that have enacted statutory rights to healthy environments. What can we take from those other jurisdictions? Uh, is there anything that might preview, you know, what what sort of obligations or or issues that uh, businesses and individuals are going to be grappling with over the next few years? Yeah. So, and I think I touched on this a little bit earlier, but there's different ways in which the right can be recognized. And so I don't think we can look to countries, say, that have, you know, recognized a right to a healthy environment in their constitution, because that's going to really reach far beyond the protections that we have available um, or that we can envision being available to individual Canadians under SEPA. Um, we do know that there are a number of, you know, for example, UN member states that have enacted a right to a healthy environment uh, in their national legislation, France, Portugal, South Africa, that have done this. Um, and, and granted that right has been, um, you know, spelled out differently in each jurisdiction, but we've seen individuals be able to avail themselves of that right. Um, and for example, to judicially review government action. And most of the cases that have uh, been commenced by individuals have occurred in the global south. Um, so I, we don't have as much you know, precedent to point to in, for example, the EU or um, you know, those type of jurisdictions. But we have seen cases, for example, there's a South African case, it's fairly well known, um, Earthlife Africa versus Minister, uh, Minister of Environmental Affairs, where um, uh, a South African NGO filed a judicial review uh, of a government's decision to license a, a coal power station. But so uh, I think these are the kind of you know, proceedings that we could envision occurring in Canada, that this might be a new means by which individuals can seek to judicially review government um, decisions being made under SEPA. And again, I think that would largely relate to things like pollution prevention, decisions regarding risk management or use of certain substances and how they're being assessed and whether they're being appropriately assessed under our risk assessment scheme. So I think, you know, we've seen some action in this space, but we've also seen how, you know, you, you need something more to make this a enforce, enforceable and meaningful right for individual Canadians. Well, thank you, Diana. Um, I think that there's a lot to come in this space, and uh, we're going to have to have you back on when, when we uh, see the government's framework uh, for, for implementing the right to a healthy environment, because there's certainly going to be a lot to talk about then. Of course, it was a pleasure speaking with you both, uh, and I hope everyone enjoyed hearing about uh, this latest round of amendments to SEPA, because it's certainly going to be uh, interesting to see how the change occurs over the next couple of years. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Disputed. If you'd like to find out more about this topic, or how to contact our guests, please visit nortonrosefulbright.com disputed. Also, if you have any questions, feedback, or topics that you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us at disputed at nortonrosefulbright.com. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to Disputed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.